That was a great prep for our uh, time in the Word today, and I'm thankful for our worship team who's led us, and I'm thankful to hear you guys sing. It's not just a performance that happens up here, it's everybody participating together, and it's been good. Uh, to sit in the front, encourage you who can to sit in the front, because you hear so much more, you participate so much um, with everybody else around you, it's great. Um, we're obviously participating today without the presence of Pastor Steve, and, uh, and so I get to preach today. They're on their way back from fall break, and so they'll be here tonight to lead us in uh, the prayer service that will be happening, but I get a chance to uh, share with you this morning. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you about Twist of Faith, but before I get into that, I want to, kids to know now's your chance. Kids, ready? Just like Pastor Steve said last week. Ready? Set? Go. All right. Kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. There we go. Excellent. So uh, the one that just went running out, of mine anyway, um, that just went running out a, a month or two ago uh, was riding her bike and took a hard spill. Now she was wearing her bike helmet and so whoo, everything worked out all right, but it was a little nip and tuck there for a little while because she came home after the crash and was really sleepy, and then she lost it, all right? I'll try to be diplomatic about that, but it, it, it came out, all right? And, uh, and so, as a parent, what do you think about when those two signs come up? Concussion. How many of you have had a concussion, either minor or major? All right, some of you can relate, all right? So, uh, not a fun thing to go through as a parent. You get a little nervous about that, and we consulted the doctor and took all the appropriate precautions, but, uh, and she turned out all right. But um, I was reading this past week through all of my back copies of Psychology Today magazine. All right, that was a joke because not only do I not collect that magazine, I would not read that for fall break. Uh, but... Uh, I, was, I did, in preparation for this message, um, run across an article in Psychology Today, and uh, it talked about what secular psychologists call an existential concussion. All right? Whether or not we buy the terminology uh, and the diagnosis uh, is, is different than understanding what it is. So let me go there. An existential concussion, this author describes... Uh, can happen to people who experience catastrophic loss, live in hostile and oppressive conditions, reached a certain point in their addictions. And this article was particularly um, With addicts, we consistently crash into the same issues and problems in life and repeatedly make the same mistakes. All of these crashes bring about an existential concussion and that concussion further increases the frequency and severity of our, clash, of our crashes. So you see what she's talking about in this article. There's this, this struggle, and we, we run into catastrophic loss, hostile oppressive conditions, or come to a certain point where we just can't figure it out anymore. We can't get over what we're struggling. And because we can't answer why... We have this, what they would diagnose as an existential concussion, and it just gets worse. Uh, later in the article, she goes to her, her, one of her key sources, uh, the, the Honorable, <clears throat> that's a joke as well, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. All right? Friedrich Nietzsche was an atheistic German philosopher, 
But he does do a great job of assessing the struggle that we deal with. He says, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Isn't that well said? We can and do tolerate all sorts of suffering as long as we can make sense of it in some way. Now, he's looking for an answer to suffering apart from God. He rejected God outright. But do we not all struggle with this when suffering in whatever form and to whatever degree comes into our life? We have this why question, and we can't answer it. It's like, we, like it shows up on a test and we just blank out. We have no answer. How do you deal with that? Well, even Christians struggle to know why. Especially Christians struggle to know why. Just this week, uh, a Christian pastor named John Aragon wrote a short article for the Gospel Coalition entitled, How to Say God is Faithful When Suffering Won't Stop. He writes, My wife and I have dealt with her ministry burnout and discouraging health issues, along with her grandmother's death, relational strains with people we love, deferred hopes to conceive another child, and the deportment of my aunt and uncle. That's a lot. You pray and you fast and you act for some you act for something. Something as good as justice or reconciliation or healing for a child. But the answer's still no, or not yet. I've discovered that my heart can be so easily filled with bitterness against God as I struggle to reconcile his goodness with the suffering that's happening all around me. Maybe you can relate. Can you relate? Thanks. I think the unanswered why question that we can relate to can sometimes feel a lot like a mosquito. You know how you're out enjoying the campfire and out of you're just enjoying the beauty of the fire, the cooler fall temperatures, and then this stinking mosquito that we thought was gone shows up and it buzzes right by your ear. Right? And then because we don't like to be pestered with them because they suck the life out of us, we swat at it to end it once and for all. And what we're left with is an itch and a stinging red mark on our skin because we hit ourselves too hard but missed the mosquito. That's what I think trying to answer the why question in the middle of suffering is like sometimes. It's tough. And that's what Job is all about. Talking about Job's twist of faith. And so if you're not already in Job chapter 1, we're just going to walk through the book today. All right? I'm going to try to keep this to a little less than three hours. Hopefully a lot less than that. But this is the great theme of Job's story. Does God owe us answers to why we suffer? If we have no answers, does that mean our struggle is meaningless? So appreciated our offertory today. Obviously, I did not come up with that. Um, you can um, you can uh, find the reading that I did during the offering, uh, actually penned by John Piper. Uh, but does that mean that our struggle is meaningless if we cannot answer why? Is Frederick Nietzsche correct? Well, there's a ton of stuff that we could discuss in the Book of Job, and um, and. 
John Calvin thought there was plenty to discuss as he dealt with all of the themes in Job. And so he preached 159 messages from the book of Job. That's over three years of Job. <laughs> Which I'm sure left his church family going, why God? Right? It's a ton of stuff that we could talk through from this book. It is great. But I've tried to narrow my scope and keep us to one particular goal. It's how do we pray properly through our pain, even when we can't answer why. And I can tell you from my own walk with the Lord and from what I've learned from the light of Scripture that we need to pray through our pain. Not pray ourselves around or over our pain and not be buried by our pain. Pray through our pain. Which was the main gist of my last message that I got to preach about a month ago. But it's been about a month and a lot of life happens in a month. Job prays many lament prayers. Uh, laments are prayers in pain that lead to trust. It's grieving to God. And when we take our prayers to God in lament, He moves us from heartbreak to hope. Okay? The vehicle that moves us there is our prayer of lament that moves us from heartbreak to hope. And I, I gave you an outline. We'll follow it through as we... Um, we'll follow it through. I'm not getting anything here. So I'll just talk you through um, the book of Job, starting in chapter 1. Job, as you recall, was a good man who suffered greatly. He lived at approximately the same era, from what we can tell from the literature, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he lived in the mysterious land of Uz. We don't know where that is. But the narrative begins in chapters 1 and 2 and wraps up in chapter 42. Okay, We have three chapters dedicated to the story of Job. Really, really brief in the grand scheme of the fact that it's 42 chapters in Job. So Job is rich in family, in possessions. He fears God. He worships Him daily. He's righteous. But that loyalty catches the eye of Satan who brings a complaint to God, a, an attack. He's the adversary, the opponent. And so, in this behind-the-scenes view, we get of the heavenly courtroom, the accuser comes to God and he says, the only reason Job blesses you is because you bless him. And God, for reasons we can't fully understand, says, okay, then take away everything. But don't harm him. And so... Uh, everything that Job has, including his children, and all of his wealth is stolen or killed in a single day. How does Job respond? Look with me at chapter 1, verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job turns to God. In the middle of his chaos, right when the pain and the tragedy strikes, he turns to God. And when we are grieving, we need also to turn to God. Well, Satan's not yet ready to admit defeat, and so he requests permission to take away Job's health. Oh, make him suffer personally. Don't just take away everything around him. Take away his health too. And God says, okay, but you can't take his life. 
And so he's afflicted with these repulsive boils. And they are so bad that Job's friends, when they show up to meet with him, they can't even recognize him. He's in uh, a pile of, of dust and dirt and, and he's got broken pottery and he's scratching himself from these boils that are painful and disfiguring him. Does he cave? Does he curse God? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, You still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He turns to God again. In lament, his initial heartbreak is expressed to God in I'm going to you, God. You're still in control. I'm going to take the good from you. I'm going to take the evil from you. But I'm, I'm going to continue to turn to you. And it reminds me of uh, when my friend Kurt Glancy passed away. He was a pastor at Rock Point, And he died of a heart attack at 42. I'd been playing basketball with him that morning. Um, but his wife, when she got the news, obviously rushed to the hospital. And, um, but it was too late. He was gone. And where does she turn in her grief? They pull the sheet over top of his body. And she says to the pastors and others around, can we just sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness? So that was her way of turning to God. Just like Job did. And it's where we need to turn when life's out of control from our vantage point and we can't figure out why. But Job's faith has, um, has just begun to be tested. And like if you have lost a loved one, you know that God gives strength to meet the initial crisis, but that testing only seems to intensify as the weeks and the months drag on. And, um, and so you get all these unanswerable questions that flood your mind. And you need to grieve and you need to mourn. Once you turn to God, what do you do then? Well... It helps when you have friends who come around and encourage and help. And Job actually had three. At the end of the book, there's another one named Elihu, and we're not sure where he came from or when he came onto the scene. But the three friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they come around, and they grieve with Job for a whole week. They don't say a blessed thing. That is the smartest thing they do in the entire book. They just sit with him. And after sitting with him, their silence probably seems to convey that Job can trust them to hear and to understand when he's ready to talk. And so finally, after a week of suffering in silence, Job opens his mouth to give voice to the complaint that has welled up in his heart. And Job complains to God. What does Job complain to God about? Well, several things. And the first is that he was even born. He complains to God that he was even born. So if you look in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. I jump forward to verse 11. He complains, Why didn't I die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Verse 16. Or why wasn't I hidden as a stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? It would have been better 
to just be stillborn rather than even come out of the womb. You can see how he's just kind of walking back. Oh, my life, it is such a burden. Why was I even born? I've never been that low. But the guilt, or not the guilt, the weight of things is just crushing to him. And that's why he complains in chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, about the heaviness of his grief. If you flip over there, you can see he's complaining about his heaviness. Oh, that my vexation were weighed. And all of my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. Grief is uh, so paradoxical. Can you weigh it on a scale? It doesn't weigh a blessed thing. But you try to carry it. And like Job's word picture is, the whole beach just fell on me. I can't breathe. And sometimes we can get that way when we can't answer why. It just feels like I can't breathe being crushed by this. Those who have felt grief intensely have described it with some other word pictures like it's a puzzle that your heart longs to complete. But no matter how hard you look, you can't find all the pieces. We've got a lot of puzzles like that. thousand piece puzzle. We have 997. Worked so hard, but you can't get the whole picture. Or grief is surviving a fall into a deep pit, but not being physically able to do anything to ascend back to the surface. Someone else described grief as suffering internal physical wounds and stumbling to the hospital only to to discover the doctor's dead. Job complains about being born, about the heaviness of his grief, And he also complains about the sleepless nights. Chapter 7, verse 13, he says, When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, at least I can get some sleep, which will give me some perspective, right? Then, verse 14, you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. That's hard. You see how honest and real Job's prayer is in his, in his grief? He can't answer why, and he basically just says, God, would you please quit looking at me? Just leave me alone. That's pretty real. That's brutal honesty in prayer. When all you want is a good night of sleep, and you can't get it, like Job, complain to God, about your circumstance. I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's part of the grieving process. And so, um, Job complains about the sleepless nights. It's pretty clear in his mind, this is from God. He doesn't just say, as I've heard a number of people say, well, God allowed this to happen, as if there were some other force equal with God, and God just said, well, I guess I'll just let that go this time. Job's very clear in stating, God's in control, and he's doing this to me. And so he very honestly, and in a raw way, just expresses that to God. In fact, it feels, and Job complains, like God is attacking him. God, why are you attacking me? If you're still in chapter, uh, if you're around chapter 9, look at verses 17 and 18. Pretty explicit here. 
For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. God's doing this. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Eric Ortland wrote an article uh, entitled, How Did Job Speak Rightly About God? And he says, in Job's horrifying new vision of the universe, God is a moral monster and his creation a kind of inner city ghetto filled with unanswered screams of the innocent. But it gets even more layered and more complicated for Job because he feels like he is unable to talk with God like an equal. He wants to complain to God, but he doesn't feel like he even has the words to be able to do that. Jump over to chapter 10. I'm sorry, chapter. Or look back in chapter 9, uh, verses 2 and 3. He says, Truly, I know that, this is, that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. That's just exasperating when he thinks about who God is in comparison to who he is. He's really honestly wanting to pour out his heart to God. He does, but one of his complaints is, we're not even equal here. He feels like the junior hire who at least got an A in government, but now he has to go debate with a skilled legal expert, a lawyer, about the technicalities of our legal system. Whoa, I'm out of my pay league, my pay grade here. I'm out of my league. That's Job's complaint. God, I want to talk to you about this, but even if I could, I can't because of who you are. Have you ever been that honest with God? That's, uh, that's pretty raw, gutsy, to talk to God that way. Won't God be disappointed with him? Won't God be angry with him for talking to him like that? One of the things that I get as I read through all of Job's complaints is, is Job uh, is not polished and pretty. He's brutally honest. I am struggling, God. And I'm struggling with the things that just keep piling up. I could, I could talk more and more. One of the things that struck me most is is uh, in chapter 10, verses 12 and following, he, he talks about the change in the relationship that he struggles with. In chapter 10, verse 12, this was pivotal for me in understanding Job's complaint. He says, You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Okay, so how does he say in that verse that he came into existence and is sustained? through God's love. Job had enjoyed a, a wonderful, loving relationship with God. He recognized that the only reason he was there was because God loved him, because God was merciful to him. He's not like assuming that, that he deserves what he got, but rather that God was kind and God was gracious and God blessed him. So he enjoyed that relationship with God. Look at how he describes the relationship changing and you jump down in verse 14. If I sin, you watch me, and do not acquit me of my iniquity. All right, so, so I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, he's praying something like, why did the relationship change, God? I thought you loved me genuinely. I thought you cared. 
But right now, it feels a whole lot like you're the cop waiting around the corner just to catch me when I'm speeding two miles an hour over the speed limit. Are you just trying to bust me here? What's going on? Why did we go from a loving relationship to this authority relationship? Because Job is seeing everything in this, in this black and white view of things right now where he's like, it seems like I'm being punished for something that I didn't do. And he doesn't have a category, and so he's expressing to God this struggle in him. I want that loving relationship that I used to enjoy, and I just can't find it right now, and the only category I can give it is, God, you must have changed your relationship. Did you change your relationship? Why would you change your relationship? What did I do? Leads him to the point of exasperation where he, he sees a hopeless future. If you flip over to chapter 14, he gives a couple different images to describe hope and no hope. In verse 7 of chapter 14, he says, For there's hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it'll sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. There's at least some hope there for a tree, but jump over to verse 18. Look at what he says here. Different analogy altogether. Is Job the tree or is Job the mountain? But the mountain falls and crumbles away. The rock is removed from its place and the waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. So he gives this analogy here of a mountain, right? And when all the rocks fall off of the top, what hope do those rocks have of getting back up to the top in their original location? It's done, right? Trees, well, they at least have hope. But Job feels like his life is the rock that just fell off the mountain. And there's no way it's going back up to the top. It just ain't happening. It's hopeless. And so he complains to God about the hopeless predicament. You ever felt totally hopeless? Or at least really close to totally hopeless? You know in amusement parks they have those rides where you stand in the trap door and then all of a sudden the trap door comes out from underneath you and you fall and you go down the slide? Well, Job's standing on the trap door and the bottom falls out. But there's no slide. And he's just falling. Falling. And all of these prayers of complaint that we have is Job falling again and, and, and saying, God... Help! God, this makes no sense. And in his free fall, he speaks freely. One of the things that I would encourage you with is that uh, when you're grieving, you need to be able to speak freely to God. You need to be able to speak freely to God. Job's brutally honest with God, and I want to encourage that kind of brutal honesty, guided by two guides. But realize that you have permission in your grief to speak freely to God when you're guided by these two guides. They're the love of God and the sovereignty of God. If you will allow yourself to be guided by the love of God and the sovereignty of God, and speak freely in your complaint to God. By the love of God, what I'm saying is when, when that's guiding you, 
you're not just blasting God so that you can be right and you can walk away justified that you're right and God's wrong. But what you really want is to be restored in your relationship with God. Something's come between us. There's this unanswered why. You can't explain it. And so because you love God and you want to be, feel like you've re- been restored to Him, you would complain to God honestly so that that relationship can be restored. But that's kept in check so that it's not just this ushy gushy squishy thing, but it's kept in check by remembering who God is. That He is in control of the universe. And that when Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good, He really means all details work together for good. And you remember that this is not just the God who knows your situation, but every single person in this room, every single detail of everything that's going on in the animal kingdom, in Montgomery County, in our country, in the world. He's the sovereign of the universe, and all things work together for good. And so when you can remember that that's your God, and you you know that He loves you, and, and you want to be restored to Him then speak freely in your complaint to God. Job gets God right. So when the doctor comes in and he says that you or a loved one don't have long to live, when you can be guided by the love of God and the sovereignty of God, then speak freely. And when tragedy happens to you or to your grandkids or to somebody else you know and love, Speak freely to God. Turn to Him. Complain to Him. And then, using the third part of our lament prayer, ask boldly. Job asks boldly for two main requests in in this book. And the longer he talks, the more insistent he gets in in expressing these requests. Uh, The first is for his ability to make his case in the heavenly courtroom. In chapter 23, I'm going to flip there. If you, uh, if you want to join me, feel free. Chapter 23, listen to Job's bold request to God. He says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. See, you can't find God to talk with him. Oh, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him, like a lawyer, and fill my mouth with arguments, I would know that He would answer me and understand what He would say to me. Would He contend with me in the greatness of His power? No. He would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with Him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. His first request is, God, I don't know where you are, but if I could find you, I sure would love to be able to present my case because I think I can make a pretty darn good one. God, can I do that? Second, um, the second thing that, uh, that Job asks for is an explanation to his injustice. And you need to flip forward to chapter 31 verse 35 here, to find this one. Job 31, 35 through 37. He not only wants to present his case, but he wants God to answer him. 
He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. He doesn't even know what the charges are, in other words. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. He's going to display it. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Because like princes, you know, they don't just kind of... They don't kind of tiptoe on in. Big pomp and ceremony, right? He's going to make a big production of this. And God, I want an explanation for what seems to me like awful injustice. Job's so confident his suffering is a matter of injustice that he begs God for a chance to blame God. And I know that doesn't sound right, because it's not right. But his oral arguments are ready, and he feels confident he can prove his innocence. And that brings us to the last part of Job's lament. The part where Job expresses explicit trust in God. But it doesn't come easily because Job has to learn to trust God even though his requests are denied. Both of the things that Job asks for get shot out of the sky. And they get shot out of the sky... Because in a surprise twist of fate, God appears and questions Job in chapters 38 through 41. In a surprise twist of fate, God appears and he questions Job. Now, we're not going to read those four chapters because then we would be here for the three hours, right? We're not going there. But I want you to just not get ahead of ourselves here. I want you to imagine you don't know the end of the story. Because I'm guessing a lot of people here know the end of the story. And it doesn't seem surprising to us because we just know this is what God does. This is how it all ends. I want you to pretend that you've just digested 35 chapters of what seems to you very deep, heady, complicated, hard to understand Hebrew complaining and arguing. Hebrew poetry that's complaining and arguing. It's this, there's this debate that's gone on. And then, boom! God shows up. And he starts to defend himself. He does so, as C.J. Mahaney says, by taking Job to the zoo. Right? He, uh, he gives a tour of creation with question after question after question of Job. Job, where were you when? Job, who controls the sunrise? Job, who controls the weather? Who sends the lightning down? Job, who does this? Job, who does that? And Job, Job's just shocked God even showed up. God appears and he questions Job. God does not have to show up to Job, which I think conveys to us God was incredibly merciful to Job. He didn't have to show up. He's not accountable to Job. But He does because He cares. He shows up. And He doesn't come in an accusatory way to Job. What He comes in is in the form of questions. He talks with Job by asking him question after question after question that all comes to one answer. It's Job saying, I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know that either. I don't know. I don't know. Job, you're going to demand an answer of me? And you don't know? See, he doesn't even rub it in like that. But that's the, that's the, the subtle implication of all of the questions. God reveals himself to Job. And the revelation of God to Job is what changes Job, not the answer to why. And so I would encourage you, if you're struggling with unanswered questions, with pain that you can't figure out why, that you meditate more on who is God than why God. We've got to change our question. Because the who question will lead to far more satisfying answers than the why question ever could. And when Job comes to grips with who God is, then in a surprise twist of faith, Job withdraws all of his demands to know why. And he repents of all of his presumptuousness that that he could actually stand in front of God and argue with God and be right. In chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, Job answered the Lord after the first two chapters of questions, he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I'll proceed no further. Flip forward to chapter 42, and Job gets even more humble in his words, more contrite and repentant in his spirit. Because he's seen God, or he's heard God, from God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job just drops his case altogether. After all of the effort to, to line up his logic and his arguments, he just said, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm done. And I'm sure that there are many here as I gaze across the room who are wrestling with your own deep pain and you're wondering, why has this happened? Or maybe... You've been walking with the Lord for a number of years and you keep thinking, I'm supposed to learn something through this. I just know I'm supposed to learn something through this. And that's not a bad question. But I don't think it's the best question. Because what God wants is for us to draw near to Him. It's very personal and and it's not just this factual thing of some fact that I need to learn. It's this closeness in the relationship with God. And so I would try to encourage you to ask a couple of different questions. The first would be, if you could know all that was in the mind of God for why you're going through your struggle, do you think you would trust Him more? Or would that actually make you trust Him less? Because there's something in us that feels like we're in control, even if it's just to a small degree when we think, well, if I could figure this out. But in our prayers... And in our struggle for why, if we can come to the point where we say, God, even if I never understand, I will trust you. 
then there's a satisfaction that comes deep into place, a peace that passes understanding. Because we've cast our cares on Him and we realize He cares for me. Which is the second question that, uh, that I would turn us to. God, I would encourage you to ask this. God, what do you know about unjust suffering? What do you know about unjust suffering? Does God know anything about that, guys? Ladies, does God know anything about that? Go read the Gospels. Go read Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Why in the world would the sinless God suffer in our place? Why would He become a man? Become a baby? You know how much control babies have? They can't even control their own bladder. But here He stands as a man before Pilate, and Pilate's bringing the accusations against Him, and He's silent. Does Jesus know anything about unjust suffering? Can He relate Does he know what you're going through? More than we know. More than we know. See, God's not just the doctor who dishes out answers. He knows them, but what he knows is that a lot of times we just need family and friends, and he is the family and the friend who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He's a great high priest passed through the heavens, he's been with us, he understands our struggle. He's the friend who loved me, who loved you, and was willing to take all of our punishment because he took all of our burden of sin on himself and he died in our place. And, uh, and that, that provides a whole lot better perspective than why, than knowing why. He's with me. It's all I need. The Lord's my shepherd. It's all I need. He's with me. It's all I want. And in a surprise revelation, God commends Job for speaking correctly about him. And to me, I think this is one of the most uh, fascinating statements in the entire book. Because I would have thought that when Job pours out his heart to God, in all of these raw complaints, that in his bitterness, because he says time and time again, I'm just going to pour out my complaint to God in all of my bitterness. You would think that he would have messed up somewhere in his ideology about God. But he doesn't. He understands God well. And that is, that is in contrast to Job's three friends. Job's three friends had this rigid system of theology that they were bound to because this is God, this is His box, this is how He works. If you put in righteousness, God will bless you. If you sin, you will suffer. That was how they, in a variety of different emphases, that was how they understood God. Job didn't make this mistake. He knew that God, in His sovereignty, allows, even causes pain and suffering, and then he redeems it to bring it all together for good somehow. Job's three friends had what I would call a coin-operated God. You put this in, God spits that out. 
I hope you don't serve a coin-operated God. The kind where you say the right actions, or say the right words, and you, you do the right religious actions. You come to church, you do your devos, you pray before meals, you, you thank God for this and for that. And you expect God to dish out blessing and increase and prosperity and prestige as if this earth was everything. I would encourage you, don't think that because you showed up at church today and you hit all the, that if you hit all green lights on the way home, it's God blessing you for showing up at church today. And let's not assume that God's going to protect you from cancer. Now, He may, but He has a perfect plan, and it's better. And He carries us through those dark times when we don't understand why. And I love the fact that Joe spoke correctly about God. He understood some things are too majestic. I can't understand them all. But God's with me in it. And he spoke rightly about God. And I encourage you to do the same. So when the pressures of life overwhelm you and baffle you, when, uh, when you can't explain why your pain is happening, and you can't get it to stop, I encourage you to turn to the Lord in lament. When I, was, um, when I was finishing a summer out at Twin Lakes Camp, we took a vacation to kind of recharge. Man, did I need it. I was exhausted. So we went to uh, North Carolina, and some friends of ours met us there, and we shared this condo. And I went swimming out in the ocean several times, and one day the waves were particularly big, and, and I was loving it. Right? And so I went out and... And I, um, I'm in the waves, and I came up at just the wrong time, and a wave came over and just hit me flat. And, uh, and I had just enough air to, uh, or just enough time to get a breath of air, and it, it just tumbled me. And I, I don't know how many times I flipped under the water, but I was, I was all over the place. And when the wave passed, I swam to the surface and just totally smashed my face right in the sand at the bottom <laughs> totally disoriented and sometimes that happens in life where you get totally disoriented by your circumstances and you reach up for god and you hurt yourself but as you go through those times as you suffer through your injuries as you deal with your pain and your struggle remember it's not meaningless you have an outlet. You have a vehicle to carry you from heartbreak to hope. And the story of Job tells us in, in, uh, in not so many words that you can turn to God in, your prayer, in prayer. And you can complain honestly to God, guided by the love of God and the sovereignty of God. And you can ask boldly of God, but leave the request with Him. Let Him do what's best. He'll work it together for good. And just close expressing explicit trust in God. God trust you. God, whatever happens, not my will, but yours be done. If you can get there, God will carry you through. And you may be able to make sense of it later on. You may learn from it and be able to pass that on to others. And, and God may find creative ways to show you how you can redeem that and help others through it. But that's not the point when you're going through it. The point going through it is that God will carry you through. And he will be enough for you. Job had so little 
of God's revealed truth. We've got the whole book. It shows us who God is. Will He be enough for you? Will you turn to God in prayer? Will you pray through your struggle, even when you can't understand why? I hope you will, because that's been the challenge. This week, maybe you go on a walk. You get alone in a quiet place in your room, in your house, if there is one. There's not one in mine. But there's places where I can get away, and I can pray. And so if you're wrestling with an unanswered why, pray. Journal it. Find a way to talk to God about it. Let Him carry you through. It'll have to happen again and again and again. But God will carry you through. He'll be faithful, because that's who He is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we can cast all of our cares on You, and You care for us. I thank You that You're sin that soothes our troubled souls. And I ask, God, that for those who are struggling, that You would soothe their soul with, whom, with who You are, with how good You are, with how in control You are. I thank You, Father, for being enough. And we leave our cares in Your hands and pray that You would give us the perfect peace that passes understanding. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.